Hello and welcome back to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge with me, Suzanne Rain, and Professor Ali Ansari. And Ali, I'm going to hand straight over to you, who's going to do the introducing of our special guest this week. And we do have a special guest, Suzanne. I'm very pleased to welcome my good friend and colleague, Professor Phil O'Brien, who's Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St Andrews. He is in the International Relations Department, which means he's basically my next door neighbour. But we don't see enough of you, Phil, because you're so busy and you have been so busy these days with all sorts of things, both professional and policy related, I suspect. But um, we're glad to have you here. And we're very glad because we're going to talk about, lo and behold, Ukraine and policy towards Ukraine. So I suppose in many ways, Ukraine has fallen a little bit off the news cycle and a little bit off the radar. Can you give us a sort of an update on where we are at the moment? You know, what's been going on in the last few months? And obviously, we know that Zelensky has been in Washington. Uh, First of all, thanks so much, Ali and Suzanne, for having me. It's something we've been trying to set up for a while, and I'm glad that it's finally came about. Where are we? Well, I think we have to actually go back to the summer and the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which people put a lot, some people put a lot of hope in and were wondering what was going to happen. What we have seen confirmed, I think, this summer and where we are now is that mobile advances are incredibly difficult in this war, particularly as neither side has air supremacy. So we have to put out of our minds this concept of war of fast-moving armored columns. I mean, one of the issues is the idea of war going into this full-scale invasion was just wrong. So we had an idea of war of blitzkrieg, Russian blitzkrieg, Russian shock and awe, all these tanks moving down roads, blasting Ukrainians out of the way. That didn't come about, and it's gotten worse and worse because basically defensive firepower rules. And unless you can attack a side that is so weak that it has very little option, very little ability to resist, it's shown to be very hard to advance, and particularly if you're attacking a side that's dug in, and the Russians have dug in. So the counteroffensive revealed, I think, the reality of frontline warfare in this kind of war. And the Ukrainians made some advances, not a lot, uh, but they did take some territory, but the losses they incurred were quite high to begin with. Ukrainians have one significant problem, and that is they have a much smaller population, so they cannot get involved in an attritional war of soldiers with the Russians. They can't get into a a one-for-one exchange or even a two-for-one exchange. That's not in their calculation. So they went to uh, and evolved into more of a, a strategy to save numbers, to save their soldiers. That was controversial to some. I actually think not. I think that was the only option they could have had because I don't believe had they thrown everything into one great assault, it would have made any difference. It probably would have just increased losses. So we have had the situation where the counteroffensive made some small advances and then has reached a stage of relative stasis or actually going the other way now because at the same time, U.S. aid for Ukraine has really shrunk. So the last four months, the Biden administration has given less to Ukraine than they were giving last spring in one month. So really, the deliveries to Ukraine have gone down significantly. The administration is not giving them the kind of aid they need to sustain any kind of offensive operations. So what has happened is the Russians have, in many ways, started to do much more of the attacking in places like Abdika and um, or even around Bakhmut. So the Russians are doing the attacking, suffering massive losses, making very small gains, which is the story of the war. 
So that's where we are. Generally, the Ukrainians are sitting there, and that's why this question of aid is so important that we're going to talk about later. The Ukrainians don't have uh, the kind of weapons in stock now to launch any kind of attacks because they have not been given a lot in the last few months. They're switching to a defensive posture on the front line, and that's probably where they're going to be for a while until this aid question gets worked out. Phil, can I interrupt? So that's a really good overview of how we've ended up in this kind of entrenched sort of stalemate at the moment. And just to reflect back over some of the decisions that were taken possibly too slowly over the last year, year and a half or so, one of the arguments was the sooner we get the right capabilities to the Ukrainians, the more capability we give them to basically push the Russians back. And there's an argument that said, because we were so slow over some critical capabilities, that was what enabled the Russians to dig all the trenches and lay all the mines and just get sort of set in there. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, this is something I was screaming about last spring in the Atlantic. That's right. That we, we have a boys wargaming view of war that this is, well, there's that, and then there's also a terror of escalation. And what they did with this administration, and I would say other major European powers, certainly like the Germans, mm. is that they have combined to create an aid process whereby Ukraine was given very strictly limited aid in terms of range. You know, and you can, mm. by the way, tell they were given nothing that could attack Crimea. So the United States and Germany have given them nothing that could reach Crimea. So they were given a lot of material, but it was very short-range material that forced them into an attack on the Russian front line. And I think this is a combination of one, a, a bad view of war, which is mm. war is decided by battles and the engagement on the front lines. But secondly, it's the result of the administration and others' escalation fears. I mean, yeah. they really put the great success of this war in posturing has been the ability of the Russians to convince the United States that they might go nuclear. And that has absolutely gotten itself, it seems to have gotten itself into the administration's mind, and it has strictly limited what they've given to Ukraine, even though every time Ukraine gets the things that Russia says they're going to go nuclear about, Russia never does, and I don't believe it will. But yes, so we had given Ukraine a great deal of stuff, but it was quite limited stuff. It forced it into this attack on the front line as the only option. And what we saw was the reality of that kind of warfare. So I think that is one of the fundamental questions the administration has to face, is do they want to give Ukraine the kind of material where it could rage a modern war, a fully ranged war throughout all of occupied Ukraine, and indeed help Ukraine if it wanted to, to attempt to devise its own systems to attack inside of Russia. Right now, Ukraine is fighting with huge restrictions. Russia can attack anywhere in Ukraine. It can attack with any weapon anywhere in Ukraine, and Ukraine's told, you just got to deal with that. Whereas Ukraine can't even attack anywhere in occupied Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> it's got very strictly limited <clears throat> weapons, and it certainly cannot attack anywhere in Russia with Western-supplied weapons. So it's an asymmetric war in Russia's favor. I find that, I mean, it is quite astonishing, actually, how well in a way, Putin has played the psychological game, yep. you know, the psychological warfare and the way in which we are being forced to tiptoe around things and to effectively, you know, self-deny. I mean, as Suzanne will tell you, I find lots of um, rather depressing parallels, I have to say, with Iran. You know, I mean, this sort of idea that one has to always be very, very careful in case of escalation. 
But in actual fact, what this does is it puts you at a basically at an inherent disadvantage while the other side can sort of carry on almost at will. I mean, not, you know, they, obviously Putin isn't doing necessarily well, but he's obviously playing this game where he's expecting effectively the logistical support for Ukraine to dry out. And it might have happened earlier than he thought. I yeah. mean, I think that, that everyone had assumed that as of last summer, when the Russian attacks failed and the Ukrainians had some success and the line stabilized, that what Putin would do would be play for the November 2024 election in the United States and assume that there was a pretty good chance Trump would win. And there is quite a good chance Trump would win. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a two-horse race, and he's one of the two horses, unless something quite substantially un unexpected happens. And that if Trump wins, the calculation would have been a Putin at that point. He now has the whip hand. Trump would you know, probably freeze aid to Ukraine. God knows what Trump would do with NATO. And that would be the catalyst for some kind of Russian success in the war. So I think that was a lot of the thinking, was that he was paying for November 2024. Mm -hmm. It might have happened already. So this is all depressing. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that, well, one of the reasons that there's less coverage on the Ukraine war is essentially there's, mm. there's a lot less change because of the, the sort mm. of hardening of the fronts. And because it's quite complicated now, and it's very localized. And because it's so depressing and people can't work out what to do. And I, we're going to come on to America now, because sometimes when it's really clear that the war is going badly, actually that galvanizes a response. And, and there were sort of phases during 2022 when, you know, Kiev was being bombed and things, and everyone said, well, we must help. And sometimes it galvanizes a response. And sometimes it just depresses everybody and then pushes people to thinking, well, there's not really much we can do about it anyway. So why don't we just, you know. I don't think that is that. I mean, what's gone on is a political imperative in the United States. In fact, mm. in a lot of European states, support for Ukraine is growing and becoming hardened. So if you are now in the new Polish government or in Finland, mm. or <laughs> they're actually ramping up everything they can do. The Finns are starting artillery production, artillery shell production. And the Germans actually are starting to pledge significant amounts of money going forward, much larger amounts than we've seen in the past. So many European states are actually looking to the future and saying, we're trying to make a significant commitment to Ukraine. The problem is the United States, yeah. which has provided half the aid to Ukraine. And actually, this is not a case of American public opinion moving against Ukraine. That has not been shown in any opinion polls to be consistent. There has been a significant drop in Republican support for Ukraine. Democratic support has in many ways gone up. So it's not, I wouldn't argue, I would argue it's not a question of people getting depressed or bored. It's the Republican Party now seems to have a political stance not to help Ukraine, or enough of it does, and that's affecting policymaking. And by the way, it, to me, it's doubly frustrating because Ukraine can win this war. This Russian army isn't particularly mm. good. I mean, we, its losses are catastrophic. It functions quite poorly as a military. Mm. That the Russians, by the declassified, and by the way, U.S. estimates are on, on the, the low side. The United States is quite cautious on its, on its estimates. Say the Russians have lost 315,000 soldiers. Mm. Goodness. Yeah. Mm. I saw that, and it was something like, 90% of their original fighting force is now Wipe killed out. or injured. So that's extraordinary. And they've lost, what, three to 4,000 tanks. Wow. Double that in armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles. They have lost more in less than two years than the United States has lost in every war since 1945. All right. Considerably more. This is not an efficient fighting force. But what has happened is we've aided Ukraine so poorly 
that we have allowed this force to be regenerated a few times. Mm. I mean, that's been the, the real real mistake was not giving Ukraine what it needed last summer when the Russian army was on the ropes. Yeah. That's when, if we had given it Atakums, if we had given it JASMs, different kind of these range systems, they could have devastated the Russian army. We didn't do it, afraid of escalation. So you know, if, if, we're, if we're saying we're depressed, it's because we've given the wrong thing. You know, this, this is a beatable Russian army. But I don't actually think it is depression. I think it's a political imperative in the United States which has just hardened more quickly than, you know, I was more like Putin. I thought it would be November 2024 would be the crucial date. It might be happening right now. And if they can't get a bill through Congress, then American aid in 2025 now will be non-existent. And that would be of a huge impact on the war. Can I just ask, I mean, a slightly, I mean, this is always something that's puzzled me, but presumably there's an obvious answer. But I've always been curious about, you know, Russian air power. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the Ukrainians are always asking for you know, supply of, of fighters and so on. But I've always been struck that, from what I can see, the Russians have, have never got air superiority, have they? And it, I mean, is this just that the Russian Air Force is also pretty dire? I mean, what, yeah, what? well, the Russians <laughs> can't do complex operations. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that, that, you know, yeah. The Russian air power can't do the single most important element of modern air power usage. Now, I don't have whether you want me to be too nerdy in this podcast. No, no, please, please do. Please, no, please, 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 please do. This is what drove me a bit crazy about the analysis of the Russian military before February 24th. If you are the U.S. Air Force mm. and you are approaching an air campaign, Mm -hmm. Desert Storm, something like that. You have one first test, which is actually the hardest thing you can do, and that is what you train for the most. It's a, an acronym, and SEED, S-E-A-D, Suppression mm. of Enemy Air Defenses. That's right. really hard to do, because you have to locate the systems, put the right attacks, you know, vectors on those systems and take them out. Very quick reactions, multiple systems involved. Russians had no experience in this. In Syria, they didn't have anyone firing back at them. So they didn't actually have any experience in running the foundational element of a modern air campaign. But everyone assumed they could do it. But what we have seen is they cannot do seed. Yeah. They cannot suppress Ukrainian air defense. And their inability to suppress Ukrainian air defense means that their air power, in terms of fixed-wing aircraft, has got to be kept basically flying over Russia. <laughs> Or maybe Crimea, you know, or out in the Black Sea. They cannot fly their aircraft except the very quick sorties, boom, boom, in, out. Yeah. They can't patrol. Now, what normally would have happened is, say, if the U.S. was using air power, they would try to patrol close to the area of battle to get targets of opportunity when they appear. None of that can occur with fixed wing in this war. For the Russians, because they cannot patrol, they're going to be shot down. And they're terrified of the patriots and things like that. So how air power has worked over the battlefield is much more through UAVs and increasingly through UAVs because it's a question of having so many of them and they're quite small that shooting them all down is very difficult or impossible. So the Russians cannot do what we would consider modern air power from an American point of view or even a European point of view. Are they learning? They are showing what I would call modest learning in the sense that if they get hit over the head once, they sometimes adjust to the weapon that hit them over the head. I don't see a huge tactical. I mean, the tactical evolution on the battlefield has been human wave attacks. So that you know, what have they done? Their, their tanks were getting destroyed in large numbers, and so they moved in both Bakhmut and Advika often to human wave attacks. That is a form of adjustment, you'd say, and, but it's not what you'd call a sophisticated form of war making. 
So you do see some adjustment, but I don't see a deeply reflective learning military. Whereas the Ukrainians have shown much greater adaptability from a lower base, what they have done in the Black Sea, for interesting. The Ukrainians have waged a naval campaign without warships and actually forced the Russian Navy on the Black Sea out of Crimea, in many ways, out of Sevastopol. So when you look at these two militaries as learning adjustable militaries, Ukrainians have shown a significant advantage on that. But the Russians still have a lot of stuff, and that makes a difference. Phil, so I've got another question about uh, about learning, because I saw in the news today or yesterday, soon recently, that US and Ukrainian military officers are saying they're going to work out details of a, a new strategy. And it would be really helpful if you could explain, certainly to me, I'm sure Ali knows everything, about the kind of the genesis of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which was supposed to happen uh, you know, between summer and autumn, and, and which has become this kind of debate about whether or not it worked and whose fault it was. Yeah, there's a lot of anonymous Pentagon officials covering their ass that's going on yeah. uh, in this analysis. So there's two questions. There is the what happened with the counteroffensive debate, and then there's the what is Ukrainian strategy going forward discussion. So what happened over the counteroffensive is typical ass covering. That the Pentagon, the United States, armed Ukraine to do this kind of offensive. It didn't work. I would argue it didn't work because of the technological imperative, and it hasn't worked on either side. No one's been able to make these kind of armored advances work. It's just too easy to shut it down. And because of all the mines, presumably, because the Russians are... I mean, mines are one... I mean, mines in and of themselves wouldn't stop it, but it's mines with UAVs, with artillery with handheld anti-tank weapons, with helicopters that pop up. There's just so many different ways to disable vehicles. And they're so vulnerable and becoming increasingly so to different systems. Like as UAVs get better, they're getting, in fact, more destructive to vehicles. So it's just very hard to do it. So in my mind, what we ran into here was the technological imperative. Ukraine was given a, a pretty small number of Western tanks few months to learn them, and then told to do modern combined arms warfare in a way that no Western state would ever do because it didn't have air supremacy. The United States would never have been able to fight this campaign. It would never even have conceived of fighting this campaign. And the reality of war, in my mind, is what we've seen. Now, there does seem to be some boys in the Pentagon who don't want to admit that because that means they armed Ukraine poorly. So what they're saying in those stories in like the Washington Post or the New York Times was it Ukraine's fault that Ukraine abandoned these combined arms offensive too early? If only they had thrown everything into this one great attack and kept going, then they would have had success. It's, of course, unarguable because there's no evidence for it, but it's a convenient way of saying it's not actually our fault for arming Ukraine improperly. It's Ukraine's fault for not using what we gave it. And so that's been the debate. Now, no one has come out and said this openly. It's always been anonymous officials, which is a bit pernicious. A lot of very senior U.S. officials on the record really disagree with this. Most recently, Phil Breedlup, who is the former four-star in the U.S. Air Force and Supreme Allied Commander Europe, he said, this is just ridiculous because we wouldn't do it. We would not have asked our troops to do these assaults without air supremacy. So that's been the debate over the counteroffensive, and I think there's a lot of self-serving aspects. The one about strategy is a fundamental And I think it's one where the administration in the U.S. has sort of got to answer one fundamental question, and maybe they have answered it and we just don't like the answer. And that is, do they want Ukraine to win? 
or not. And by the way, when President Biden was asked that the other day, he didn't answer. He just smiled. I think actually they don't want Russia to win, but that's very different from having Ukraine winning. And that is the fundamental strategic end. What do you want out of this war? And if your view is not to have Russia win, that's a very different ending than having Ukraine win. Ukraine win, in my mind, is liberating all of its territory. Not having Russia win is in many ways giving it nothing new, um, which could go back to the February 2024 line with a devastated military. So I'm not sure we can have a strategy for Ukraine if we don't have an answer to that question. Because they have to say what they want. And then, of course, they have to give Ukraine the weapons for that. But, I mean, just to, to follow on from that, I mean, yeah. it is obviously, I suppose, worrying yeah. to think that there are, obviously, in, in the United States, mm -hmm. they aren't quite sure that they want Ukraine to win. They want, obviously, Russia to lose, but they're not quite sure what that endgame should be. You know, there are some people that say that there is an interest in actually just encouraging the Ukrainians to bleed the Russians dry, if you will, or to, to you know, to bleed the Russians down. But to, to keep this going, I mean, it strikes me as that's, uh, I mean, when you're looking at the, the, the politics of the United States, I mean, there are obviously those that will view it as a deliberate act. Is this not more really the fact that there's indecision at the highest level, essentially, is what's going on? Or maybe there is decision, we just don't like the decision. Right. I mean, I, I tend I mean, to view, if, I say, don't look at what they, I mean, even the phrase they use, we'll stick with it as long as it takes, or Putin can take nothing from this war. It's very different from saying we want Ukraine to win. And if you add what they specifically say to the weapons they've mm. given, and they've given very, very distinct weapons, then I think we can say, actually, they are not fighting this war to liberate all of occupied Ukraine for Ukraine. I think they're fighting this war to allow Ukraine to survive, uh, take, you know, hold most of its territory, but prepare the groundwork for uh, a peace deal in the end, which hands over part of Ukraine to Russia. And that seems to be where they're going. So I don't know if there is the indecision. It's just, I don't know if we like the decision. I mean, that's, that's interesting. And I mean, fundamentally, in your view, however, mm -hmm. Phil, you think that Ukrainians could win and could take back this territory. So, I mean, I, I suppose that end game would only make sense if there is a view that Ukraine cannot take back the territory that's already lost. But you're saying, on the contrary, properly armed, properly supplied, they could do it. Which I, obviously for Zelensky must be enormously frustrating. I mean, they could cut off, they could, if they were even given 1990s to 2000 US weapons, they could liberate Crimea before actually, in many ways, the mainland, because Crimea has so few access points. Mm -hmm. They've already driven the Russian Navy out of Sevastopol. All they would need to do is take down the Kerch Bridge. Wouldn't be easy, but they could do it with a range of attackums and jasms and different kinds of you know, US range systems. And then you've got one road into Crimea, and that's through occupied Ukraine to the north. That could then be cut. And then Crimea is unsustainable for the Russians. So that's not, in many ways, a complex question. There's only a few roads in. They've already won the naval war. Uh, so yes, this could be something we could help Ukraine do now. Crimea is legally under international law in Ukraine. But we are not giving them the kinds of weapons the only powers that have done that so far are the British and the French. The British and the French with the, the storm shadows and the scouts. And look what the Ukrainians did with that. They drove the Black Sea out of uh, the Black Sea fleet, fleet out of Sevastopol. So yes, they can do it, but they need the weapons to do it. I mean, war's not won on 
bravery or grit. I don't like that. Wars run on capabilities and systems. And the Ukrainians don't have the capabilities or systems now to win the war. And they're not going to get them if we disarm them for frontal assaults. So this raises a, a sort of constant question about the extent to which America is really is really in it for the long haul. And we did a simulation the other day in Cambridge where we looked at if what we all think is going to happen over the next year and sort of baseline assumption that the war will the war will move into a kind of grinding on phase of diminishing returns for both sides, really, unless something happens. And it, there could be variations on that, but that's the broad thing. That's, of course, it's not just Putin not quite winning. So on the one hand, you can say, well, that, that kind of fits a American strategic end to just draw Putin into this endless conflict. But of course, it doesn't because it's not an end to the instability and the simulation that we looked at had uh, increasing instability in Belarus again or increasing Ukrainian operations in other ways because if they're frustrated at the front line, how do they get it at Russia? So just because you have a sort of stalemate kind of situation in Ukraine, you don't reduce the potential for disruptive instability in other areas in, in Europe. So it's not a solution. And in fact, it could lead to things which are escalatory in, in different ways. And we've seen you know, Russia pushing in the Baltic states against the Nordics, uh, all sorts of other kinds of disruptive activity. So coming back to the American politics question, Phil, one of the things that you hear the Ukrainians saying all the time is their argument is that this war does matter to you because it's about the right way of behaving in the world and it's about democratic freedom. And if you're not prepared to stand up for this, then what are you prepared to? And that argument just doesn't seem to land. Mm. No, it doesn't. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I always think the political debate in the US shows how hollow phrases like national interest and realism are. The Ukrainians have handed the United States strategically an extraordinary opportunity that the United States wasn't expecting. The United States was, the Pentagon, the administration was expecting Kyiv to fall in a few days, that, that uh, Ukraine to be, in a sense, taken over, two-thirds of it taken over by Russia. Maybe there'd be a Ukrainian guerrilla war, but that this was going to be a win for Putin in terms of territory and land. Amazingly, the Ukrainians showed that wasn't the case, even though we hadn't armed them terribly well at all. By any option, the United States could end the security question of Europe now. If we helped Europe win this war, and I say I'm, you know, I'm a dual national, so I don't know if I can use we on both Britain and the United States. Hurrah! If the U.S. helped uh, Ukraine win this war, it basically ends the security dilemma in Europe for generations. I mean, this is an extraordinary bonus for the United States, which has actually had European security as a high point in his mind since 1945, and was very worried about European security before the, the Russian invasion, because Russia was considered so powerful it could overrun the Baltics and go to war with all of NATO. Well, what this could be is the end of the Russian threat for generations. If you have a Ukrainian victory, Ukraine integrated into NATO, armed, Russia would represent very little threat. <laughs> to NATO for a long time, NATO European states. And that would allow the United States to reorient itself to the Asia Pacific without a concern in its backyard. 
if you allow the Russians to get anything out of this war, establish a principle that you can take mm. another state's territory by force, you create long-term instability in Europe. The Baltics, Finland, Poland, all these states that were part of Imperial Russia, mm. um, the so or the Soviet Union, or indeed the Warsaw Pact, will now say, hmm, what does this mean for us? So it just seems if, if by any normal definition of national interest, the US was given an opportunity that it could have grasped to arm Ukraine to end this war on the Ukrainian favor and very much in American interests. It's not doing that, and it's not doing it partly out of, you might say, the ideologi ideological escalation, but also partly because of the power of populist politics. Mm -hmm. The Republicans aren't doing They don't see. I mean, the Republican Party has both the most pro-Ukraine people and the most anti. It shows how weird it is. I mean, there are the old line Republicans like Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney. They are very pro-Ukraine. They would like to give Ukraine everything, even Mitch McConnell. But then you have the base of the party, which is Trumpite, and they're just following Trump. <laughs> Trump doesn't like Ukraine, he likes Russia. If Trump liked Ukraine and hated Russia, they'd probably want to give Ukraine everything. But it just shows the irrationality of national interest, the failure of that phrase, I think, to mean anything. And certainly, it's a great failure of the United States to maximize its power, which is what we say realism is. Realists are hard-headed. They think about power. All states try to maximize their power in the international system. The United States has an amazing opportunity to maximize its power, and it's giving it up. It's allowing Russia to come back. It is extraordinary, actually, when you put it like that, that there is this opportunity, as you say, to uh, seal the deal on European security, and it's simply not being taken for the reasons that you've obviously quite rightly uh, outlined. But it is, uh, I mean, the more you think about it in that sense, the more astonishing it is. And I, you know, as I said, I see it always in this sort of tiptoeing around uh, in terms of policy, in terms of approach, this fear of, you know, we've become almost, you know, we're scared of our own shadow or something. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're sort of running around. It's not that the Russians are particularly a serious uh, military threat, but the fact is we fear, in a sense, things getting out of hand. So do you think, I mean, just sorry to have interrupted you, but do you think if Russia is allowed to get away with some of this and some territory, that there would be a possibility then that they might seek, you know, Baltic, you know, that, I mean, certainly I think the Baltics will be even more worried. Mm -hmm. But I mean, is it is it not a possibility that this thing will simply, at the very least, exhaust their capabilities for a number of years? Oh, yes, but it would establish a very worrying principle. Yes. And the, if you're in the Baltics, no. you're not looking about the next five years. Yeah, you know, you're not looking the next 10 years. Yes, you're looking the, 15, 20, 30 years yeah. down the road. And you would have established the principle of Russia using force to take over parts of land that were not part of you know, Russia legally. Uh, hey, by the way, you also would have established the point of view of the United States okaying this. Because there would have to be a peace treaty, and one assumes the United States would be in some ways a guarantor of some security coming out of that. So it's terribly worrying. I mean, the other thing people are, are, I think, paying enough attention to is they think, oh, what if the U.S. goes home, bad Ukraine? It would be terribly bad for Ukraine. But those states then on the Russian border, mm. they're not going to throw in the towel on Ukraine. Ukraine itself might even escalate to go into Belarus. I mean, from the point of view of, the, of that, that all it does is it adds massive instability. If you're Poland, the last thing you're going to want is a Russian army on your border. Especially with Radek Sikorsky as, as foreign secretary. I mean, he's, he's been very clear about um, mm -hmm. the strength of his feeling on it. Phil, when I was listening to you talking then, so powerfully articulating why it is in America's interest to, to essentially move quickly. And I reflect that even allowing for an argument that you might not want to say that publicly because that would sound escalatory, mm -hmm. it must be 
a failure of leadership to make that convincing case? In, I mean, we can see the ideology, and I don't mean to dump on Jake Sullivan too much. But you know, Jake Sullivan wrote an article in Foreign Affairs that had to be rewritten four days later. And it was fascinating what had to be rewritten. Did you know that he published an article in Foreign Affairs on October 3rd? Mm. And it was all about how Biden was bringing peace to the Middle East. <laughs> Honest to God, this was published in Foreign Affairs on October 3rd by the National Security Advisor, which included the line that we have de-escalated crises in Gaza. This was published on October 3rd. It was then entirely rewritten on October 7th afterwards, <laughs> but they couldn't re rewrite the print edition. So if you get the print edition, yeah, you get the that, original article, that, but yeah. on the online one has a completely mealy mouth. It really is an example of, you know, what did they do after Beria went? You know, they, yeah. had to, they had to cut out Beria out of all the encyclopedias and put in extra pages on the Bering Sea. So basically they did these kinds of things. But the administration seems to think, and by the way, they've said that it repeatedly over the summer, that having quiet is de-escalatory. In other words, they mistake crises, uh, the lack of crises for peace. And so their view- So that is so right. That is so right. Sorry, that's what we're always banging on about. That is, yeah, that, is, that is the absolutely. And so therefore, that, that seems to be their view. So you know, a weapon is escalatory, but actually in many ways, if you want to end the war quickly, as, as I'm trying to say throughout this thing, if you want to save lives, if you want to stop escalation from occurring, you end a war quickly and you end a war quickly with Ukraine winning it. That's the way you stop escalation. It's the way you save lives on all sides. It's a way you keep actually a, this from becoming a global crisis. So they view, look at it very differently. They view it as keeping weapons down and making sure certain weapons aren't using because they would be escalatory. But actually, I think we've seen a, a total failure of that view of the war. Uh, that all it's done is it's strung, you know, it's strung it out. It's helped uh, create this worldwide crisis, which has added other parts of the world that have gone on and, and put the United States in a weird bind of trying to juggle three or four different crises at the time when it shouldn't be having to juggle the Ukraine one in, in, in my point. So uh, yes, I believe it's a failure of, of outlook and a, and a fundamentally flawed view of what is escalation and not escalation, but that certainly is their view. So that's fantastically clear. And I think very difficult to argue with, but that's just my view. Can we, in our few remaining minutes, turn to the question of Ukrainian politics? Because again, there's been—I mean, we've we've had this extraordinary arc of Zelensky's career, um, and you know, he's he's been for many months, certainly externally, just the, the sort of hero personified. He's now being challenged on all sorts of fronts, which is not dis not unassociated with the offensive, which is complicated, and particularly General Zeluzhny, who who is now apparently challenging him politically, which isn't necessarily, you know, it's not an unnormal thing to happen. What's your assessment of how this is playing out? Well, I mean, it's there's both the external politics of what the Ukrainians are doing, the internal politics. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about it. You know, everyone says there is a Zeluzhny, not everyone, but a lot of people say you know, Zeluzhny and Zelensky are sort of competing now, that you know, they're the, the two big dogs in Ukrainian politics and Zeluzhny, they both are overwhelmingly popular. That's the thing is they're both extremely popular, that they both have the kinds of popularity ratings that a, a Western politician would uh, die for. Neither of them want to take the blame for the counteroffensive. I think that's one of the things that's going on. So it's becoming a bit political between them. Uh, I don't think my guess is either of them would ever move against the other. 
right now. I, I can't believe, I'm, I'm, what do I know, but Zelensky would ever get rid of Zeluzhny or the Zeluzhny would declare against Zelensky wouldn't make much sense. Uh, if one of them goes, if Zeluzhny goes, and that's a sign of real crisis. I think mm -hmm. if Zelensky, I mean, and the, I don't think this will happen, but if Zelensky did fire Zeluzhny, then I think you could say there's a real political crisis going on. The more interesting question internationally is whether they have these elections. And that by all rational ways, you should say it's almost impossible to have the elections. A lot of the country is still occupied. It's a country at war. How do you do campaigning? <laughs> in a situation where you're fighting this war, if you look at you know Britain in the Second World War, they suspended elections. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a situation where many countries are under attack suspend them. Uh, the other option is it's better to just go through and deal with it and to maintain your status as a democracy because you know all the pro-Russianites are gonna go, look, Putin just had an election and Zelensky won't. Uh, even though the Russian election's a sham election, as we all know, it provides a kind of argumentative platform to say, you know, we're telling you that, that Zelensky is a dictator. He's acting more like a dictator than Putin is having this political election. So either you would think rationally, they probably holding an election is too difficult, but there's part of it that says maybe they should do it just to, uh, on the one hand, gain another mandate, but also show that they are a functioning democracy in war. Is the pressure from the Americans? I mean, because we saw these, and Ali and I had a conversation on another one of our episodes about you know visits from Americans saying you've got to hold them. You've got to have an election because it's important to show you're a democracy. I mean, I, I would, you know, we were sort of agreeing with you that the idea of having an election in the middle of a war where you know half your country is occupied seems to be slightly ambitious. But do you think, in a way, Zelensky obviously in Washington, do you think some Republicans will have said to him, look, it'll be much easier for us to give you the money? if you show that you've had an election. The only way the U.S. will have any influence is if they keep giving aid. I mean, if you, right. if, yeah. I mean fair, the, fair the U.S. right now, if the U.S. doesn't give any aid, then Ukraine can just you know, tell it, no, what you're going to do. So the only way the U.S. can have that influence over Zelensky is actually to promise some aid. And uh, I think so, therefore, the U.S. is in a very weird uh, position on the one hand of lecturing Ukraine, but also at the same time threatening not to give any aid. So uh, I think if, yes, I think if they went to the Ukrainians, here's your aid and have the elections as part of the, the aid coming in, then probably the Ukrainians would do it because the aid is so important to Ukraine that um, you know, in the short term, that military aid is vital. And then, as I've said, they've already dried up now. So it's not like the aid would stop fund coming in on January 1st. The aid over the last few months has been very small. It's been about just over a billion a month, which might sound like a lot, but it's nothing to a modern war. I mean, you use that up in Kleenex. So um, I think that's what it comes down to the election. If the Americans say to the Ukrainians, you're going to get the aid, definitely, but you've got to have the elections, the Ukrainians would probably do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Ukrainians don't seem to want to have to run that now. And if the Americans pull the plug, then there's no way they're going to do it to <laughs> satisfy mm -hmm. the United States. This whole war, and by the way, what also is going on in the Middle East, just the limits of American power, that the Americans think they can micromanage these crises. And you know, other states do what they want to do. The United States constantly overestimates its ability to influence other states. And by the way, they'd lose their ability to influence Europe. If they go home, as I said, that doesn't end the war. The United States going home just makes the war nastier and longer, but it also means other Eastern European states or Central European states become more committed to Ukraine. And the US ability to influence them is decreased because the U.S. is seen as an unreliable partner, which it would show that it is. Mm. It's interesting, it puts the U.K. in an interesting position that um, 
well, I haven't really thought through entirely, but the UK has mm. always has always maintained that the specialness in brackets uh, in quote marks, but the 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 closeness of its relationship to America is is in part a strategy in order to be able to influence America to act essentially in either in a way that we think is a good idea or or actually to help us. But in practice, I think experience would show that that influence doesn't doesn't always work anyway. <laughs> so, no, or indeed ever. It's special. Every as, as you talk yeah. to everyone in Washington, they'll say everyone says they have a special relationship yeah. with us. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, you know, the, that the UK is actually more mm. hardline than 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 Germany or France in this war. Yeah. It's much closer to the Central mm. European states and its mm. policy. And it's desperately trying to influence the United States to keep aiding, but the United States is just going to do what it wants. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to listen to Britain. Uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I think this the the reason. My this is my simplified explanation for the reason for that is 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 your position or your your stance versus mm-hmm. an adversary depends on your perception of the threat that they pose. Mm-hmm. And the UK, we've had. You know, Russia has conducted egregious acts in the UK, uh, in radiological yeah. weapons uh, on the streets of London, which has hardened... And don't forget uh, Salisbury. No, I hadn't forgotten Salisbury uh, at all. I was just focusing. But, you know, but, but you know, that, that perception of threat is shared by Eastern European countries, Baltic states, Nordic states, to a sense that it, it is less in other parts. And then you sort of think, well, obviously the Americans understand that threat in the same way, although it doesn't threaten them mm-hmm. in the same way. But one of the risks of a, a Republican victory, stroke Trump victory, which I hadn't fully thought through, but somebody made the point to me the other day, is that those um, parts of the state which understand the threat, and we're talking about FBI and CIA particularly, Trump's going to come in on day one and just dismantle them. So the things that we might have relied upon Mm -hmm. to create a kind of baseline understanding of why you have to go against Russia because of its malevolent activities, because it is trying to undermine democratic states in Europe and its invading neighbours, you might not be able to rely on traditional institutions within the American system to be making those arguments anymore because Trump, I think, would just dismantled the leadership of those organizations. I'll even be more that they actually would have won in the United States. <laughs> yeah. We can say, oh, they, they, it would mean they, the Trumpites have taken over the Republican Party and through that taken over the government and Putin's won. It, clearly he's won by making the United States go down a road that is not an American national interest, I would argue in any way, in fact, undermines American security through no use of military force but through manipulating the political system. The only hopeful thing out of it is it might make Europe wake up. Europe seems to be waking up a little bit now. It's got a long way to go. Mm. But it never really, I think, thought, and I remember at a conference in Germany just a few months ago, still people were saying, oh, no, no, Biden will win. And there's no way the United States would ever really abandon Ukraine. They were still acting on hope. Or you might say their rational view of the world. Uh, I think now Europeans are all of a sudden realizing the United States is not necessarily reliable. That right now it could go home, but it could really go home in, after November 2024. And Europeans have to be willing to confront that reality. And maybe that's you know, it, it ends the parochialism. 
for Europeans, and they have to start acting together more out of their own real security concerns. Okay. Well, that's an optimistic note to, uh, I know. <laughs> to probably end on, that the yeah. Europeans will finally realize that uh, war is a continuation of politics by an admixture of other means. Uh, just to uh, end on a Clausewitzian note uh, as we head into Christmas. Anyway, I think that's... Uh, that's it. That's it, isn't it? So I just want to say I wanted to thank you, Phil, for taking time out, particularly at this very busy time of the year, I have to say, to come and chat to us about Ukraine and the consequences and the wider political environment, which I think is, how should we say, it's a bit of a cold shower in some ways, but it's something that we need to really keep an eye on because I think more than in many ways other events going on in the world, this is going to be much more significant in its consequences in the long term, certainly for European security. So thank you once again. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And thank you from me.